in the Looking Glass War. British intelligence send a young recruit behind enemy lines to gather information. What about the children? No filter. It's a game to you. And you love it. What will you say? Missiles and Colchester range 700 miles. In the tradition of the spy who came in from the cold, John Le Carre's Looking Glass War, Monday at 8. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back to Pulch episode. I'm not sure what episode it is. I think it's seven. I think it's episode seven. We are back from our film hiatus, but lower your brows and get off your high horses because we're doing a spy thriller this time. It's The Looking Glass War by Jean Le Carré. Le Carré. Is that not how you say it? No. <laughs> How do you say it? Le Carré. What did I say? Le Carré? Yeah. So it's an A, not an A? Uh. Yeah. All right. I mean, it's, it's not even his real name, so I guess he's, he's probably not too worried about how you pronounce it. Sure. Yeah, it sounded weirdly francophone for an English MI5 guy. But uh, anyway, if you would like to weigh in on the Le Carré versus Le Carré, uh, issue we have an email address now it is pulchpod at gmail.com write us in give us your angry letters give us your tired your whatever questions comments suggestions harangues if you have anything to say at all um if there's enough attention we might do a listener questions or right into the show, kind of an Ask Abby kind of situation. I will read out every single email we receive, no matter what. That's true. That's a legally binding statement. So no matter what you send us, we have to... You want want to make me say vile, vile racism? (laughs) Do it. If you want a soundbite of either of us uh, just reading out any text that you send over us, we legally have to. It's in the show contract. The producers are holding us to this. It's not our choice. Guns to our heads. We have to read out anything we're sent by our, our dear devoted listeners. Yep. I mean, that's that's sort of the story of Pulch, that we were a uh, we were a small independent podcast, but we got picked up in episode four, and uh, we signed a 360 deal with a big publishing house, and now... They have us by the balls, uh, proverbially, <laughs> and we have to and do literally. whatever they say. Uh, so, Nick, how have you been this uh, well, two weeks now since uh, since the last episode, which I barely remember? Yeah, it's uh, it's been a good two weeks. I have um, been ordering perfume online and uh, watching The Simpsons. And, uh, ordering perfume online seems pretty risky because obviously it's it's very dependent on uh, something that you can't convey over the internet. Being how it smells. Yeah. 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 I mean, so you can do it one of two ways. You can trust Luca Turin, the man who wrote Perfumes, the guide, and you can trust the other people on Base Notes to never let you down. <laughs> or you can do it the real redneck way, which is go to your Macy's, go to your Sephora, and request to try you know, Versace L'Homme, for example, 
and then pretend not to like it when you actually do and go home and order a used tester bottle online for a quarter of the price. Storm out with, yeah. with disdain for the department store, having refused uh-huh. to buy anything. Yeah, yeah. You say, How oh, dare you God, offer me this low-class perfume? That's terrible. I hate this. Wow. It smells like shit. <laughs> it's awful. Um, yeah, and then you go home and you say, you know, let me get this for uh, a fraction of the price on some discounter online. So, yep, that's what I've been doing. I have a big package coming in from Deer Park, New York, any day now. And I'm very excited for that. Yeah, both of those are good approaches. Um, I recommend it. It's the Polch way. Yeah, maybe I should start wearing perfume. Just to like, if you go on, do you guys have Craigslist there? Yeah, um, I mean, it's not. We we have it, but it's not like a widespread thing, so it's pretty sparse. Sure, or or any classifieds like that. You can usually get like um, uh, just a bottle of, of any main brand perfume that someone gets as a gift and they don't like it and so there's they've sprayed it maybe 10 times and they're selling it for you know 20 percent of what it actually should be so if you want to dip your toes into it that's probably the um cheapest way to become a beginner perfumist and I thought you were going to imply there was like a secondary market of people who will steal perfume specifically to sell on Craigslist at knockdown rates. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, you can usually tell if you're stealing from, you know, a 35-year-old woman uh, that she's <laughs> unlikely to have burglarized it, but it could happen. Who'd suspect a 35-year-old woman? That's true. If it's a guy with a... um a black and white striped knit cap and he's he's got <laughs> a little mask yeah he's got a little uh a sack with a dollar Over sign shoulder. on it that's clinking, clinking with gold yeah he's always sneaking around alleyways um i would advise against buying perfume from that man unless he can show you the receipts <laughs> so well, what's what simpsons have you been watching nothing but golden age i presume yeah, I'm um I'm a little bit more generous than some people are. Some people will cut off the Simpsons at season 8. And I really? am a season 2 through 13er. That's uh, that's, that's a pretty generous spread. Those are my numbers. Yeah, it's not as it's not as consistent after season 9 or 10 or so, but you cannot cut off Bart the Grifter. Yeah. Um, you can't... That's the episode title, right? I'm. If I get The Simpsons wrong on the internet, I'm going to be, like, crucified. Send you a contract that you have to commit Harry Carey if, uh, if you get anything wrong about The Simpsons. Any, if you say anything wrong about... We could be completely wrong about literature. We could be completely wrong about, about film. But if I say something wrong about The Simpsons... I was uh, I was watching some Simpsons this morning. Yeah, it was, just, it was on TV, and there was like I can't even remember what episode it was. But there was a classic episode, and then there was like a modern episode, and just the drop in quality was just massive. <laughs> it was the one where Homer climbs the mountain, which is great, and then there's the one where he goes to rock camp, and it's just a bunch of rock stars doing cameos as themselves. That's uh-huh. like. It's like 
<laughs> so <laughs> pleased with itself. Did you know that the only, you probably know this, the only public appearance Thomas Pynchon has ever had. Two episodes of The Simpsons. Yep. Was his episode of The Simpsons, the okay. one where Marge writes a novel. These fries are delicious. I'm going to put the recipe in the Gravity's Rainbow Cookbook next to the frying of Lot K-49. It is, it's very funny that he has just such a, like a New York accent. Like he sounds like he should work at a deli or something. Um, uh, Maybe maybe he does. Grift of the Magi. I was thinking of both Bart the General and Grift of the Magi at the same time. And that's what I came up with. Thank God we've corrected that. Uh, you no longer have to carry live on Saved Twitch. our skins there. Uh, you do not have to an hero on camera. Yeah, so I've been I've been watching the, of course, the Golden Age. I sort of skip around. I sort of, my process is, I think of, oh, yeah, what's the one where Homer gets a snowplow? And then I'll watch <laughs> that one. And while I'm thinking, oh, what's the one where Bart joins the mafia? And then I'll watch that one. Yeah. And uh yeah, so there's really no method to the madness. It's just uh wherever the spirit takes me. Uh how have you been spending the last two weeks? Uh I've been continuing to just read at furious rates. Uh I also I finished the wire. Okay. And um, my my DVDs, which I got second hand for like a pound per season, completely fine up until literally 25 minutes left of the final episode oh no so i had to i had i i fought with that disc for uh, for a while but i gave up i had to torrent just the last episode <laughs> and finish watching it but the problem is i torrented it in a in a much much higher quality than the version on my on my <laughs> disc which just made the whole the previous 60 hours worth of television I'd watched looked like complete shit. <laughs> you thought that their couch was in perfect condition because it's so low res. It's like yeah, it's just, just the normal couch. I don't know anything about The Wire, but everyone says it's good. It's, it's, it's pretty good, yeah. I mean, my, my issue with it is like it, it pretends to be like gritty, realistic, journalistic like depiction of down and dirty Baltimore life, mm-hmm. but it's there are several part elements that are just so outlandishly cartoonish. It just completely destroys any claim to very very similar very similitude it, it has. Okay, I've I've not actually seen it. I know it's like a a Baltimore show, and they deal drugs, and there's like cops and such. Yeah, it's 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 about long term wiretap investigations carried out by a by the police interesting i know it was kind of from that wave of like right after the sopranos was really successful um there were other like kind of artier tv shows that kind of tried to elevate the medium a bit like the wire and uh boardwalk empire and so on yeah it's sort of around the same wave yeah it's it's funny to kind of think of the sopranos which i love just damned us all didn't it because it made the it made television the the new smart guy medium it sort of replaced where film was television isn't just for kids anymore yeah yeah i mean the 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 whole phenomenon of like 
prestige TV and like Mad Men and, and Game of Thrones and stuff and, and these television series that people write about and take seriously and there's academic articles on. I mean, all of that was really spawned by David Jace. I mean, really, really, uh, Oz came first, technically. Sure. I mean, but but in terms of the impact, you know, I mean, yeah, that's true. But like, because Oz was HBO's first like serious adult hour long drama. Mm-hmm. So if if Oz hadn't succeeded, The Sopranos wouldn't have succeeded, and several several cast members did migrate from Oz to The Sopranos. And at one point, uh, they at one point in Oz, they get HBO on the on the TVs in prison, and they start watching The Sopranos. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it, it's like there there were good TV shows before, but I mean the in, it's it's the impact really that made this like a such yeah. a, a game changer, you know. I mean because it's like I mean you had Twin Peaks before that, and way before that you had stuff like The Prisoner. Yeah, Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. But I mean, just the the impact that Sopranos had in terms of legitimizing the medium. Uh, I don't know. I think I think. It's kind of a bad thing because I'm just a bit of a reactionary and I like film over TV and I like the novel over film and yeah. you know, I want things the way they were, God damn it. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I'm, well, it's, it's obvious. I mean, if you watch, I don't know, Mad Men or, or Breaking Bad or something, it's good TV, but it's TV, you know? I mean, the fact that you have to tell a, a, you know, a story that wraps up at, at the end of 45 minutes um, yeah. Even if it's a segment of a larger story, I mean, it always kind of has to have something of the Saturday morning cartoon to it. <laughs> you know, I mean, in the good TV shows, they recognize that and they sort of they accept that bond. You know, like yeah, you know, they the, even like say The Sopranos, it doesn't take itself too seriously. It's it's you know, it's dramatic and sad, but it's also very funny. Um, yeah. And, and it seems to understand that, you know, this is something that you're watching on your couch after work with a beer. You know, it's not. It's not Wagner. Yeah, there's there's he's only. Not, he's not dressed up to go out to watch The Sopranos. Right, right. I mean, I do. You know, I, <laughs> I think it would be disrespectful to Phil Leotardo if I weren't wearing a tie while I'm watching the show, you know, <laughs> drinking my wine and eating manicot. But, uh, yeah, it's it's much more limited i think in a lot of ways than film and of course nothing competes with the novel as a form in my opinion (laughs) well speaking of the novel speaking of serious uh, heady television uh so two of two of the the best tv shows i've seen are adaptations of le carry novels Uh, tinker sailor soldier spy and Smiley's People. And it was watching those that um, first led me to read the character because Tinker Taylor especially was just transcendentally good television. Even considering the limits of, you know, it was made in the 70s, so it's still a very boxy aspect ratio. So even though they're doing these very artful compositions, they still have to have, every time a character is speaking to another character, they both have to be standing really close to each other so they both fit on screen. That's always fun with old TV shows. Yeah, it's great. I've been watching loads of old BBC dramas lately. They're fantastic. <laughs> so, John Le Carre is a writer that is known about here, but he's not such a big deal. I knew him as he wrote yeah. spy fiction. 
And so I really was, I was a little bit surprised when you picked this one, because to me, I'd, I'd always mentally put him in there with like Tom Clancy or John Grisham or, Tom you know, Clancy. other writers of like, yeah. you know, airport bookstore thrillers. Yeah, he's, he's definitely a, a step above that. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say like he's not a, a, a great artist. Um, he's not like, you know, your Dostoevsky's or your Kafka's. But he is sometimes, you know, you just want a break from the heavy yeah. stuff. Sure, just, sure. Just I mean, gripping plot. yeah, Graham Greene is the obvious comparison, I think. What motivated you to pick this one? What did you see in it? And what did you think? Uh, well, basically, I've been, I've been working through his books in chronological order, and this was the next one in the series. Well, not series, but the next one in his oeuvre. And I thought it'd be interesting to, to read it and see what you thought of it, because I'm coming at it with a lot of context, and you're not, basically. Because it's, um, it's a very English novel. It's very concerned with England as a, as a country, England's image of itself, and very, very specific uh, class striations in England, especially the period in history in which it's set. I, I did pick up on that, and maybe you'll be able to expand the detail a little bit for me. But uh, yeah, so for the listener, the book is about a small... I never figured out what they were called. They're the usually department. just called the department. Yeah, but I, I couldn't figure out what their official name was. But anyway, a, uh, a small intelligence agency that believes that they have uh, photographs of a new Russian missile installation uh, oh, about 80 miles east of the East Germany-West Germany border. So they, how's the best way to summarize this? So the novel begins with their courier uh, being killed, bringing back a film from their contact on the other side. Um, and this leads the people at the department to believe that, well, you know, this is this is an agent who is killed in the field, and uh, the East Germans, the communists, are protecting uh, this military installation, which we have pictures from from this contact. Yeah. Um, throughout the novel, it's, uh, I mean, I I could see where it was going, but I think it's supposed to be sort of unclear whether this uh, courier. Taylor was killed or whether he was just hit by a car because he was drunk yeah. um, and whether these uh, photos are of a middle military installation or whether it's um, basically a sham sold to them from someone who has a history of selling yeah, faulty selling information to the British. Yeah. Uh, by the end of the novel, it's made pretty clear that it's all a wild goose chase, but I think there is supposed to be, some doubt to sort of string you along throughout the first two acts or so. Yeah. Um, if, you know, I, I could just sort of detect from the tone of the novel that, okay, this is where this is going. But, um, you know, maybe if you weren't so cynical, uh, you might be along for the ride a little bit. Um, and so it's a, it's a strange spy novel because the actual mission takes place in the last three or four chapters, I think. Yes, it's, there's, it's about the last fifth of the book is the actual mission. The rest of it is the preparation. Mm -hmm. And so most of it is um, them trying to requisition uh, the funds and materials they need to actually carry out this mission 
And uh, the director, uh, this little man named Leclerc, who is um, basically, he wants to raise how the department is viewed in the eyes of the British intelligence community and, and sort of sees this mission as an opportunity to legitimize themselves because they're they're waning in power and recognition and they no longer have their clandestine operations division and they're basically just a research arm of yeah. a broader uh intelligence department well, the, that's of the circus the circus yeah which uh george smiley is a part of and i take it that he's a He's a bigger character in the other novels because he shows up every so often basically to deflate everyone's hopes. Um, yes. But, but he's, uh, it's, my copy is subtitled a George Smiley novel. So I assume you're supposed to know who George Smiley is. Yes, so George Smiley is second in command at the circus. He's the protagonist of several other Le Carre novels. He's, Smiley's deal is that he is the anti-Bond because Corn... Uh, David Cornwell, John McCarry's real name, he actually was uh, an MI5, MI6 agent, which is why he publishes, why he published under a pseudonym, because obviously he was, had to hide his real identity at first. But basically, spy work was very boring and not like James Bond at all. So Smiley is this fat, tired old man uh, with a wife who cheats on him constantly who's more interested in 17th century German literature than geopolitics. But um, he's just that damn good. He keeps being pulled out of retirement to, um, to sort things out. So what, what, what did you think of Smiley as he, as he figures in this one? Because he plays quite an unusual role for him in, uh, in The Looking Glass War. Yeah, so, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't show up very often. And basically, uh, I think he appears... To my knowledge, there are two times that he appears um, for any real length, and it's the first time when he's talking to, um, oh man, I think he's talking to Leclerc in the first scene. No, he, he talks to Avery first, and then he goes and yeah. talks to Leclerc. And he's, he's basically there to feel them out, like, you know, they have this sham story that what they're doing is a training exercise, um, because they think they need to hide their mission from the rest of the intelligence community. Yeah, and it's it's fairly clear that he understands that it isn't, and he's basically there to to feel them out and see, you know, are you doing this? Are you sure this is a good idea? And so on. He has a great line where he's asking Avery about his time at Oxford, where he read German, um, and he asks, you know, well, did they teach you Lowenstein? He's, no, that's a special topic, and he's like indignant yes. that they're not teaching Baroque. <laughs> German literature and he's 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 wonderful <laughs> I don't know I don't know anything about Lowenstein either so I'm with John Avery but uh yeah and then and then he shows up at the end after their mission has failed and their man a uh, a 40 year old Polish mechanic who has heart problems um <laughs> and is very unclear why he agreed to go along with them in the first place after he's gone over the, to the East German border and he's killed a man and he's uh, broadcast his frequency. So he was supposed to change frequencies as a way of uh, disguising. I'm not, I'm not sure how it works technically, but it's a, it's a well, method. Yes. Yeah, so they can't, so they couldn't track him down because he, he wasn't on the same frequency long enough for them to pin down his location. Right. So he was supposed to change his crystals in his radio 
I'm not sure how an old radio works, but it's supposed to change the crystals and change the frequency to uh, evade the Germans. And this was a technique they used back in the war. So it's not even clear that it would work the way it was supposed to. But he completely forgets to do that. And he's on the same frequency for like three times as long as he's supposed to. Yeah. Um, and they track him down easily. And, and there's even a little a little scene where the East German police are confused that, no, this... This couldn't have been an agent. No spy in his right mind would would be, be this broad, stupid. broadcasting on the same frequency for this long. And and look at his keying; it's very slow. It looks like it was done by a child. Um, so they're initially confused, but you know they they go track him down, and uh, I'm sure he meets a horrible end. But um, yeah. George Smiley shows up at the end, um, and he convinces uh, Leclerc and Adrian and uh, Avery. You're completely compromised uh look you have plausible deniability because the equipment is so old and you can just abandon your man and go home and you know we're already in for a diplomatic incident basically call this mission off and and go home yeah which like you said is not a very james bond kind of uh role for him to play but i don't know i mean he's he's an interesting character but he's i I guess you're already sort of supposed to know who he is. Um, yeah. So not much, um, not much attention is, is given to him. I mean, he, he really just comes off as this tired bureaucrat who, who uh, is trying to uh, keep them from doing something stupid, but, but not harm their egos. I mean, there's, there's a, there's an even more cynical kind of aspect of it that, you know, he brings up with his superior that, they knew that this was going on yes, and they, they knew they set it up to fail to destroy they, the department. <laughs> right. And they, and they knew that it was going to completely backfire, but they provided them the equipment and they provided them the uh, consultation that they needed to go ahead with this completely idiotic mission based on data that they probably knew was spurious as well. Yes. Um, basically just to, to, put the last nail in the coffin of this ailing department of arrogant, incompetent bureaucrats. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, uh, you, you can tell that it's, it's playing on a certain nostalgia for the war. I mean, anytime they're, they're together, they're, they're talking about, you know, what we did in the war and our role in defeating the Germans essentially yeah. and that's it's uh it's clear that this this group of just weird old men will hanging on to that and that kind of provides them a reason to to continue as a department and they're carrying that through even as they cut just a ridiculous figure um against the new world yeah, and there's there's an interesting contrast there because obviously the department are very nostalgic for the war. They want to recapture the war days. But um, in one of the earlier books, it's mentioned that Smiley also served in the war, and he saw something. He saw some horrifying things, which he just never even talks about. So they're they're never disclosed what they are. It's just that Smiley doesn't want to go back to the war because he saw such horrible things. Yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of a theme, though, is uh, this uh, nostalgia for World War II um, yeah. in a lot of post-war 
British media. Um, I've got to be honest. I'm talking about Top Gear because they talk about this on Top Gear, how, you know, there's an archetypal old British man who is obsessed with Spitfires and has model Spitfires and coffee table books about Spitfires and just loves this old British warplane because it symbolizes a time when, you know, Britain all came together and they kicked Hitler's ass and so on and so on. And they had factories and things. Yeah, they had factories and they were... (laughs) Um, you know, they were, they were sticking it out through the bombing and such and such. And it's, it's got this, uh, sort of totemic presence in the British imagination. So that's my high culture reference for the day. Yeah. <laughs> After the, the potted recap, what did, what did you think of the book? I mean, it was, uh, I, I went into it really expecting like spy genre fiction because yeah. I don't know anything about John le Carre. Um, and so in that way, I guess I was a little bit similar to his audience at the time. I assume his earlier novels were a little bit more conventional. Uh, well, the, the first, his first two novels are, they're essentially murder mysteries in which the protagonist just happens to be a spy. And his third novel was The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. That was his first sort of spy novel proper. And it was a worldwide, you know, huge bestseller. There's a movie with Richard Burton. And basically the, the plot is insanely complicated that this mission gets carried out uh, once again in divided Berlin people are killed uh, but the mission succeeds but it's very very morally grey it's unclear whether this is a mission that should have succeeded and a lot of people misread it and they saw it as uh, oh you know Le Mas, the protagonist, he's a, he's a tragic hero. You know, he's he's a martyr to a good cause. And Lacari was like, "No, that's wrong. It was <laughs> stupid and pointless. It got pe- innocent people killed." So he wrote the Looking Glass War, which was his next one, as a sort of no one could possibly interpret this mission as having been for any reason at all, and as being anything other than a complete failure on all levels. There's no uh, there's no middle aged men in Northampton that are. So if only Lyser had changed the crystals on time and buried yeah. that 18-year-old's body better yeah. and would have snuck back across the border. And there really were missiles, <laughs> goddammit. There damn really it. were missiles there. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's, that's interesting. What did I think of it? Um, I don't know. I mean, it was, uh, for me, the tone of the novel uh, removed kind of any doubt as to where it was going. Um, yeah. You know, you could really tell from the first two chapters that, okay, this is going to be a tragic reversal of your expectations, and the mission is going to hor- fail horribly. Um, just about any time that the characters are like, oh, we certainly have these resources and we have these competencies, <laughs> yes. and this is going to go off without a hitch. <laughs> well, like, I mean, the completely farcical. Uh, first mission when they send John Avery over to collect Taylor's body and his film, um, he's not listed as the person who should legally receive these things. So they're saying, "Well, you know, you can take his body back, and uh, you know, you can do all these other things as next of kin, but you you can't, you know, you can't claim his anything. things because he's not, you know, you're not in his will." And so the, the fact that they missed a detail just as as obvious as that. I mean, it's it's pretty clear that this mission despite their 10 odd chapters of bonding with this polish man in north oxford um it's it's not going to go off so 
I mean, in that way, you know, it's, it's, uh, on the level of genre fiction, it's, it's, um, kind of a strange experience because it's sort of like, you know, watching a, a building collapse very slowly, but you know, it's going to go down. Yeah. It was very sad to me. Um, I, I didn't get humor so much as really bitter irony. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's, there's only a few characters you can have much sympathy for, but they're all just, you know, really pathetic and they're playing a compute completely futile part in this whole story. You know, they're, they're doing jobs that they don't need to do and, and they're holding on to, uh, an identity that's no longer makes sense. And, uh, so for that reason, it's, it's a pretty depressing novel for me. I mean, it was, there was humor, but it didn't really, you know, it wasn't ha ha funny for yeah, sure. It was black, black sure. comedy. Yeah. What did you think of it? Um, I, I enjoyed it. Ob- obviously I, I knew going in, it was going to be this deliberate subversion, but you know, like I say, he's not he's not an artist, but he uh, apparently he, he falls off quite sharply after the um, after the sort of smiley books. But at this stage in in his career, he knows what he's doing. He can put together put together a plot. He can really hammer home his themes all the time. Pretty much just the constant reiterations of things about you know class differences and things. Yeah, there's a there's a great scene when they go to meet Taylor's widow. Um, and, uh, you know, Leclerc is shocked that he lives in such a poor working class neighborhood. Yes. In, um, in an apartment block. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, and they go to, uh, you know, they go to tell his wife that he's died and she's not there. She's off working her job and his little girl comes straight out of a Charles Dickens novel, you know? Yeah you can picture the rags and the gruel and all, um, you know, just sir, where is my father? Where's my father, sir? It's, uh, yeah. So it's, uh, there's, there's definitely a lot of that, that there's, they're sort of expecting to have a place in society that is not made for them anymore. Yeah. Um, that they, they want to be these kind of dashing globe trotters and they can't get funds for his, you know, Taylor's dead wife's pension and they have trouble getting cars and taxis to go around and they're always yeah. fighting with the foreign office to get funds for anything <laughs> they want to do. It's an interesting look into the Cold War from the British side because from what little I do know about uh, clandestine missions uh, during the Cold War, they were almost uniformly misled in some way. Yeah. The central mistake of the United States during the Cold War was overestimating the Russian position, that they really, they drank their own Kool-Aid in the sense of, you know, thinking, say, the famous missile gap, for example, you know, that wasn't just something that they said so they could get, um, who was it, was it Nixon reelected? Um, uh, either Nixon or Kennedy, I think, you know, but it wasn't... Kennedy was Cuban Missile Crisis, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, but there was there's some famous quote that's you know we can't we can't have a missile gap. You know the idea being that we can't let the Russians develop um, their armaments to be superior to ours. Yeah. And 
after the uh, Iron Curtain fell and we started getting good data on where the Russian military was all this time, it's become increasingly clear that that was never a remote possibility. <laughs> that, you know, the United States and uh, her allies in Europe were always vastly, vastly superior in terms of atomic bombs and everything. And, and yeah. basically, the only thing that could ever compete was Russian armor. You know, they had the tanks, but everything else, um, you yeah. know, it was, it was a paper tiger. Um, and, but there's this self-delusion that uh, you see in the characters in Looking Glass War is, from what little I know, pretty realistic that the the u.s intelligence community at least I, I assume the british as well you know carried over this this idea that oh it's wartime rules and so on and and you know that that we're the people that beat hitler and and we yeah. have to kind of keep up this level of um activity um because the russians are a similar threat yeah the russians the russians are keeping level mm -hmm. they, they sort of they have to create their own image of what the Russians are doing because the Russians aren't doing that. Right. Yeah. I mean, and today we're doing that too, right? I mean, the, yeah. the, the enemies that we, we um, trumpet in the press are always the ones that would make us increase budgets, right? You know, this, this Russophobia and the, Oh, the Russians are hacking our elections and they're doing all this and that. And they spent $200,000 on Facebook ads. God forbid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, it really is tied into, okay, what can we do about it? We can send more money to the department of defense. And it's, it's the same thing with China. I think, I mean, that, that, yeah. you know, the fact is that the real enemies that the U S and you know, the West in general, if you'll let me use that term, uh, the real enemies we have are pretty cheap to fight. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, a uh, Middle East goat yeah, farmers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you don't, I mean, but they wouldn't even want to fight us if we, if we'd stop blowing up their fucking countries. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, just in terms of, you know, if you want to kill, um, some half-educated jihadis in the middle of, uh, rural Syria, you need a drone or a surface to surface missile. And those are cheap. You don't need an aircraft carrier. You know, you don't yeah. need an F-35. Um, and the problem is that the budgets, you know, it's a, the people who get paid, you know, they, they get paid in, you know, F-35, they get paid in aircraft carriers. They, you really aren't going to uh, win any friends by buying just, you know, a bunch of dirt cheap surface to surface missiles. Yeah. This is completely unrelated to the novel. <laughs> But it's a hobby horse of mine is military funding. I mean, it's 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 kind of in line because it's it's made, made clear that like the department handled military matters and the circus handled political intelligence. And the, the the reason the department have atrophied is because they're irrelevant. Is because you know it's the Cold War. Britain especially um, has minimal actual military engagement um, because. Uh, Britain is basically still, it still thinks it's an empire. The, the department can be seen as standing in for the empire. There's, there used to be this, you know, this total global force, but now they've just completely collapsed and shriveled to irre irrelevancy, you know, in the geopolitical scene, but they're refusing to admit it. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways it's, it's a little bit more applicable to my country than yours now, isn't it? 
because, I mean, you're a whole lifetime. Uh, I think all of Europe has basically accepted, well, we're not the major players anymore. Let's just step back and enjoy our high quality of life. Um, I mean, the, the Brexit vote is kind of evidence that Britain, at least, uh, still wants to be, st still thinks of itself as a world power and that it thinks, oh, yeah, we, we can go it alone as a you know, trading body in the world. Sure. We, well, we can't because we don't fucking produce shit. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, more dramatically, I mean, is the U.S. because in the mid 1990s, you know, when I was born, uh, we were absolutely top of the tops. You know, and, yeah. and now throughout my lifetime, it's just been increasingly clear that, no, you know, you're, you're going to have to accept much more multipolarity than was the case right after the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah. You know, you're seeing that, I mean, most obviously with China now, but other other economies, other kind of world powers, your Indias and Brazils, you know, they're they're going to have... I, I think going to take up, well, not I think, obviously going to take up a lot of the influence that used to be unilaterally uh, part of the United States. And, and so there's, there's a, I'm phrasing this so badly that I don't <laughs> even know if I want to keep it in the podcast. <laughs> it's, it's up to you. I mean, it's kind of, yeah, like death, death throes of the American empire. Of course, it doesn't want to lose this position, especially since it's spent the last 100 years, or at least the last 50, you know, 50, 70 years since the Second World War, telling itself it is the global policeman that should, you know, swoop down anytime someone dares to step an inch to the left politically. <laughs> I mean, in, in terms of, you know, national identity, I think that's that's been a tough pill to swallow for a lot of the country, you know, accepting we're going to be outpaced by, you know, Chinese economic production, um, if we aren't already. Um, and, you know, a lot of the soft power, a lot of the foreign influence that goes along with that um, is going to slip as well. You know, you're not really going to be calling the shots like it's 1995 anymore. Yeah. So I think that kind of that sadness and humiliation and worryingly, you know, desperate searching for some new mission that's going to put us back on the map. I think that's very applicable to um, yeah. the late 2010s in American uh, foreign policy. Maybe right now, somewhere in the lowest rungs of the CIA is uh, <laughs> the, the future John le Carre of this period in American history. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, I I do wish novels were better sellers just to get more people trying to do it. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, there's there's always going to be people who understand the greatest medium. There's, there's a William H. Gass interview where he's back, back in the 70s, but even then people were saying, talking about the death of the novel because of television and stuff like, oh, no one reads novels anymore. And he says, all these people talk about the death of the novel. This is the best thing that could happen to the novel because it means all the amateurs will keep out of it. <laughs> I mean, sure, but you know, it, some of the talented people might keep out of it too. I mean, you you might have potentially good novelists who go into music or making meme pages on Instagram or something because that's where the attention is now. I mean, it's you yeah. know, it's not it's not 
just an unmitigated good thing in, in my view, but um, it's not terrible either. You know, I mean, it's, it is sort of good to uh, clear the air and get all the children out of the room and let the men speak. <laughs> Boys club. Um, so yeah, do we have anything more to say about the looking glass war? Um, not really. I mean, a, a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the, the things I've marked, the, the things that particularly struck me are very specifically English details that you probably might even have picked up on. Okay. Give me an example. There were a couple times where they mentioned, you know, certain streets in London, you know, that, oh, we used to be on Baker Street. Yeah. I would assume that means something. Yeah. Uh, well, there's, okay. So there's, there's a bit here. Uh, Pine requested and received from another government establishment a junior whom he treated with sovereign brutality. And uh, I've noted that out and written in the margins, fagging, which uh, are you aware of what fagging was? Uh, I think so. It's uh, it's like um, a boarding school thing where you basically yes. you bully the people who are younger than you. Uh, well, yes, specifically, if if you were uh, you know, a high class boy, once you got into the upper years, you would have a fag, which was uh, a first year boy that would basically be your manservant, and you could do what you liked with him <laughs> you could you know beat him you could use him as a footstool you could send him out into the rain so yeah look Carrie again he's he sort of he sees uh the intelligence community as an extension of these these networks because obviously the english upper classes cosset themselves you know they send the children off to the same boarding schools and then they all go to oxbridge and then they'd all go into the intelligence community so it's the mm-hmm. same sort of families, the same traditions hanging over, and that's why as part of why they can't you know, they can't accept their diminished position because they're used to being the group of power in the country. And yeah. again, the the departments are essentially playing a game. You know, Lysa accepts the mission because he wants to be you know the big hero. He wants action again, like it was in the war. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's a similar dynamic in the U.S. when they when they founded the OSS, which was the Office of Oh Something Services. Yeah, either special or secret. Um, when they founded the OSS, the precursor to the CIA, they almost exclusively recruited Ivy League colleges. Yeah. You know, they'd come up to promising history graduates or something like that. Say, you know, would you like to serve your country country in an interesting capacity? Yeah. Um, but it was it was almost exclusively like a, a an established families and and people with connections and people with very expensive educations. Yeah. Um, not a lot of Michigan State graduates, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's there's also that sort of class divide that not only the you know the NCO old you know boys club, but a heightened version of yes, that. Yes, and everyone at every level, they all went to university together. <laughs> it's just how it works. Yeah, like um, Smi- Smiley and several of the, you know several of the other spies in the in the Carrie's books are literally recruited by lecturers at Oxford who keep tabs on students who make who make good spies. And from from what I've, I've read, various reviews and things of some of his later novels, and people say he d- he does fall off once the Cold War ends. 
and he's he realizes oh, I can't keep writing about this you know this specific period. I have to move on. And obviously he's he's deeply deeply familiar with the world that the Looking Glass War and the books from around that period are set in, but he's not so much familiar with you know the modern world <laughs> outside of that. So it, it, it falls a bit flat apparently. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you and, uh, hope you enjoyed your break. Welcome well, back to everyone out there on Radio Land. Did you, uh, did you get some snacks? You know, fr- freshen up, top off your drink. Yes. Yeah, so maybe uh, check your emails. Lit- literary news, obviously, with COVID having shut down everything. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of news. Everyone's stuck inside. Uh, various things are being put back and so on. Not that I care for most new publications but new directions where you know very very important american independent publishers are bringing out some quote-unquote new kafka new kafka huh yeah is this like previously unreleased we found these papers in a desk somewhere kind uh, of situation pre- previously untranslated they've 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 been included in the the huge german complete works but this is the first time they'll be available in English, which is very exciting. We can look forward to that. Yeah, I'm surprised there is any untranslated Kafka. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Well, it's like in, in, in The New Yorker last week, there was an unpub- previously unpublished Hemingway story. It's like, what? How, the he- how the hell are they still finding things? Like, of all people, surely Hemingway has had every inch of every place he ever lived completely ransacked to produce his reams of posthumous work. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. There's uh there's one of his books um I think it's A Dangerous Summer which is like the the extended notes he had for some article that was in Harper's or someplace like that and and um it wasn't a completed novel or or what's it's not a novel, it's a non-fiction, but it's not a Yeah. It's not a completed, polished work. It's basically just, oh, this is all the stuff they cut for the article. Let's yeah. put it back in there and say it was his book. Um, it for twenty dollars. And it's yeah. I mean, it's it's not. I mean, it's Hemingway, but it's not good Hemingway because it's, you know, it it it's, it was on the cutting room floor for a reason. It's very repetitive and padded and. Yeah, I made it. I made it like three pages into the uh, the previously unpublished Hemingway story. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, it's. The thing is, I mean, Papa does not hit it out of the park every time, in my view. His, uh, I mean, when he's good, he's good. But, you know, there, there's sort of enough, you know, old man rambling about, you know, bullfighters he used to know that 
Yeah. It's, not, it's not all great literature. My favorite Hemingway story is uh, William H. Gass. Uh, once he, he wrote an essay about Hemingway and he made up one of the Hemingway quotes uh, in the essay. And people, people subsequently believing that was Hemingway quoted it in their own writing about Hemingway. <laughs> Well, it's so easy to do, isn't it? I mean, you just have to use, you know, was good and clean and fine and solid. The strong man looked out at the savannah and he shot a, a lion. He, it was a good lion, and the shot was clean and fine. <laughs> I'm glad I took that lion, Pablo, he said. <laughs> no, there's no seds in Hemingway. What am I doing? I'm out of practice. I've <laughs> never actually read any Hemingway. You haven't? No, it's... Um... He's kind of, kind of the opposite of my personal you know, taste. And that he's obviously he's just spare, cut down, cut everything, whereas I like putting everything in. That's true. I mean, it's the thing with minimalism is is you really have to be it, it takes a really, really accurate writer to do minimalism well, because there's yeah. a lot of people who ape Hemingway's style and they put little in their writing because they have little to put in it and it becomes very you know it's it's even worse than yeah. and, and what makes Hemingway effective when he is effective is that you know he has a way of writing little in a way that suggests much more the, the famous iceberg theory oh is this not even my own thoughts god damn it someone <laughs> else has said this before all well, right don't even listen to me that's people lit- that's literally what he said about his writing you he said it's like an iceberg and that most of it's below the surface. Okay. What I'm actually doing is I'm paraphrasing stuff I've heard about minimalism in, like, design. And I'm yeah. bring, porting it over to talking about prose. So if and this is hope, just... Time is a flat circle. Whatever. Yeah. Keep talking. Um, if Have you read any Beckett? Uh, no. Okay, so, so late Beckett is basically the minimalism carries to its very furthest extent in that he he shaves out everything shaves out character setting plot place event it's impossible to describe it's reduced to such you know by the end of his life he was writing things that were you know a handful of pages long like and obviously so Hemingway type minimalism just isn't isn't minimal at all in comparison to that sure yeah that's 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 my standard for minimalism yeah i mean when it's done well it's it's a really um evocative you know modernist kind of thing and when it's done poorly it's just boring writer's workshop you know by the book trash um yeah not that there aren't other styles of writing that are completely like that as well, but bad minimalism is worse than bad writing in general, I think. Uh, yeah. There is nothing more boring than stylish, minimalist, divorce and Cape Cod sort of thing. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's nothing worse, you know, shoot me now. Yeah. So, so where, where do you fall in the old, uh, the old Hemingway-Faulkner debate? Um, I mean, I don't think you can say that, you know, we have one style of writing to rule them all, you know? I mean, there's... You're bound of those two. Oh, 
You mean like not as on a spectrum, oh, no, not, as, not as you know, not where... in terms of which is the best of American writing, but you know, because they they kind of had public spats about the well. The I mean, the, the best American writer is neither of those two. Yeah, but, but the best out out of those two, who is better? Not who is best? Who is the best overall of all? American Hemingway literature. or Faulkner? Yeah, just out of those two. This is unfair because I read Faulkner when I was 14 and I thought I was smart enough to read Faulkner. So I don't have a good impression of, of what he's like. I haven't read him as an adult. I've read him as a pretentious adolescent um, uh. and I've read Hemingway more recently. So it's not fair. I mean, I remember, I remember there were passages of it where I, I sort of thought I got what he was going for and it felt evocative, or at least I tried to make myself feel evoked in a way yeah. that I thought was appropriate. But um, I shouldn't weigh in on this because I don't have a good perspective. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I read Absalom, Absalom recently. Did you? And it was amazing. It's genuinely five-star all-time stuff. Like, I, yeah. can't imagine, I can't imagine anything Hemingway wrote being as good as that, purely because Hemingway wrote the opposite to, to Faulkner and that he reduced everything. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I find a lot of Hemingway really moving and energetic. Yeah. I would definitely say, you know, if you've, if you've not given a shake to uh, Farewell to Arms or For Whom the Bell Tolls, you know, at least try them. Millions of people can't all be wrong, right? Um, have you read Sanctuary? That's the good Faulkner. Um. No, I haven't. Well, I've re I've read The Sound and the Fury, which I wasn't that impressed by. Um, I read As I Lay Dying, which I thought was pretty good. Like, that's, yeah, edging into great. Oh, like, it's, it was disgusting, wasn't it? Oh, it's <laughs> horrifying. Is it? <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, it's physically gross. The things that happen in there and and the the florid descriptions of them. Well, which bits are you thinking of? The rotting flesh uh, oh, under yeah. the cement that's... and everything it's oh that, that's the only part that stuck with me i i read it in a i read it in basically in in, in one go um, yeah last year so my memory is a bit or maybe rushed. i'm wrong i don't know yeah it was 10 years ago but but yeah absalom absalom was just fantastic it was amazing so what have you been reading I have crested uh, 100 books for 2020. The Hell looking yeah. Glass, looking Glass War was actually number 100. So uh, I'm feeling pretty happy with myself. That uh, is a lot for six months into the year. Yeah, I've been kind of letting myself... Uh, do, like, for example, I read, uh, I read Houseman, who's a, a Victorian poet. Mm -hmm. And basically, I've got, just, I've got a compilation of his complete works that I... I I counted each of his individual books of poetry as a separate book, even though they're only like 60 pages long in themselves. <laughs> Gaming the system, eh? Uh, I have also read like thousand page books this year. So I feel I can, I can, you know, I can let myself have that. But All I've, right. I've been reading a, reading a kind of a spate of biographies recently. So I read Richard Ellman's classic on James Joyce, which was terrific. Uh, I read a biography of Wyndham Lewis which was good fun. <laughs> and I've, I've started on a biography of Malcolm Lowry. 
Okay. That he should be a, a fun one. Yeah, he oh, was yeah. a, a he bastard. Was a he was a total chad. He's <laughs> maybe the chadliest author of <laughs> literature of all time. A raging alcoholic who wrote one good book and died at like 52 or something like that. He didn't even reach 50. <laughs> he died at 48. <laughs> he, even Malcolm Larry's, even Malcolm Larry's like biographers, critics who adore Under the Volcano will be like, oh yeah, everything else he wrote is just unreadable <laughs> shit. <laughs> oh, but Under the Volcano is so good. We could it's... absolutely do an Under the Volcano episode. That was yeah, that would be a that good was, one. That was actually my Tumblr URL when we first uh, started was it? speaking. It was yeah. Oh wow, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't remember. I, I most remember. Cholera in the time of cholera. That was a good one. That was a good one. Sat on that all through 2013. <laughs> but but yeah, the the Larry biography. Um, it's it's great. But the the, the biographer uh, Douglas Day is is very is very heavy handed with the the Freudian readings of Larry. Okay. But it seems Larry seems to basically just completely live up to the Freudian cast that. Day puts on him, it's he so obviously matches. But there's there's, a, there's an insane bit where um, he's being treated for his alcoholism, so they give him this treatment which is designed to to put you off it forever. Where they lock you in a this plain room with a, a red light that's never switched off, and you can drink as much as you want, but they keep injecting you with this thing that makes you feel really sick. So you associate drinking with feeling really sick. So like you stop drinking. So it's basically the Ludovico technique. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, and then they start blaring Beethoven into the room. But the thing is, normally, they'd do this for 10 days, and that would be it. Like, you know, they'd never drink again. Larry was in there for 21 days. He broke out, <laughs> went on a bender over Christmas, <laughs> and then turned up back at the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! He's like Barney Gumble. Breakers. I just, I just couldn't believe it when I read it that like, he, he could be that fucking cool. <laughs> All right, we're going to hire you to distract Malcolm Lowry while the Duff truck pulls up. Oh man, he's just. He's just great, but he. <laughs> so him and his wife moved to this. His his doctor said, like, literally, like, you will die if you have any sort of, even the mildest upheaval in your life, and you will die. So they moved to this quiet, tiny town um, on the South Downs, and um, there was only one pub. And when they when they moved there, his wife went into the pub and said, "Do not ever." Let my husband in. Let's serve him alcohol. <laughs> so what he would do is he would walk twenty miles to the next town and go into that pub. <laughs> oh my god, this is just—I mean, it's sad, but it's just Benny Hill theme kind of stuff, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, apparently he—he um, he was born into a very strictly religious family, very staid. You'd, you know, you'd have one glass of sherry at Christmas, and that'd be the only alcohol you'd drink all year. And basically, from from a young age, Malcolm Larry said, "Oh, what do you want to be when you grow up, Malcolm? An alcoholic." So he's one of very few people who's really achieved his childhood dream. I was gonna say he 
he did what he wanted to. That's a beautiful story. <laughs> he, he died doing what he loved, drinking an entire bottle of gin in one go. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my liver hurts <laughs> just thinking about this man's life. When, when they did the autopsy, apparently his liver was like not that fucked. It was, it was <laughs> I mean, obviously it wasn't, it wasn't perfect, but it was, it was not as bad as you would expect from someone who drank himself to death before he hit 50. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, some people can take it. I I really cannot. Well, I read... I've not done much reading uh, this week. I've been reading Closer uh, by Dennis Cooper. And um, I read Letters to a Young Poet, which was... I mean, it's hardly a book at all. It's like 60 pages long. But, um, oh my God. I mean, I I loved Rilke when I read him in high school. Um, Yeah. but his, I mean, he's such a, a beautifully sincere, eloquent writer. Um, and all of his, just everything he says to this, uh, what is it, Kupka or some person like that, everything he says to this, this fellow is just so beautiful yeah. and, and essential. And it's, it's almost embarrassing to talk about it. It's one of those, <laughs> it's just so, it was so moving and, uh, it was the only thing that I got me through this week. That one of his. Ooh, I haven't read. I haven't read that one. It'll take you less than an hour. I mean, I yeah. mean, do, I mean I, absolutely I have, do. Absolutely do. I've been meaning to. I've I've read the 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 Duino, Duino elegies. Because mm-hmm. um, William H. Gass did a translation, and they're appended to sort of two hundred page book about Rilke. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they're just terrific, and I love how he was just. He, he said, I'm going to write 10 elegies. He wrote like half of them, not even in sequence. And then like 10 years later, he gets hit with this lightning bolt and finishes the rest off. Yeah, he's a, he's a really singular voice in poetry. There's, there's really not, um, I mean, I guess you could, you know, there's, there's no shortage of Germans who are obsessed with nature and spirituality, but, you know, just the, the, there's a very distinct feeling of reading his poetry for me that that's always yeah. uh, kind of put him in his own category. And the fact that he's, he's so little discussed, I guess, compared to other poets who were not nearly as good. It's strange, yeah. you know, I mean, apparently, apparently he's, he's one of the biggest selling poets in America because he's apparently found he's marketed this sort of self-help mystic guru type is he is it the, is the new age crowd into rilke i never heard of yeah apparently the new age apparently the new age kind of love rilke i mean they they like it they like some things that are legitimately good we have to hand it to them you know brian eno huh? oh yeah that's uh, that's a lot he really is i mean you'd think of if you only knew him from his ambient work you'd think he'd be some kind of you know sedona arizona mystic sexless being and then you look yeah. at him in his roxy music days and it's just good god <laughs> <laughs> oh man speaking of uh, speaking of sexless beings i read i, I read today about uh, a japanese artist who um, he chopped off his penis and fed it to paying uh, paying diners wow <laughs> take that marina abramovich that's that's crazy. Yeah. That's some real <laughs> performance art. So apparently there were, there were five guests and they paid $250 each for the privilege of eating, eating this man's penis. man's penis. Seems like it wouldn't cook really well. You know, it's all... I 
didn't want to investigate yeah. <laughs> that aspect. It was but when when I, I googled his name to be like this can't I was like this can't be true. I saw on a, like sort of mentioned on a thread somewhere. So this can't be true. And you know how when you when you Google things now, it brings up some images as well. Yeah, there were there were some images of the you know cooked item, and it was it was you know browned as meat is when you cook it, but it was still recognizably like pieces of penis, and it was <laughs> it uh, was very wince inducing. Recognizable pieces of penis. I've never seen a cross section of a penis. Well, so. it, it, it it looks like he sort of cut it into like chunks, like of sausage. So it wasn't like it was. It was what I saw was the glands. Like it was very recognizably just the head. Ah, uh, I <laughs> see. Was... Yeah, this looks. Um, dear God, <laughs> I don't know what I was expecting. <laughs> it looks like they seasoned it with. Uh, some flakes of some herbs, maybe like parsley or something like that. I really, I really don't want to, don't want to think about it in enough depth to um, to consider what herbs would really accentuate the taste of grilled penis. Wow, all that for twelve hundred and fifty dollars. You'd think you'd be able to get a little bit more out of parting with your genitals. Yeah, it's probably probably more the spirit of the thing, really. It's a, sh- it's a shame I didn't know about this for uh, for the last episode when it would have been there. <laughs> oh yeah, it is thematic with uh, the cook relevant. the thief. No, I mean, I've not, not really got anything more to say. You know, it's been a, oh, we've we, we sent out a, a mass mailer to, like, to all of our clients at work to do with, to do with properties, and we, we received some very uh, um, aggressive responses, shall we say. <laughs> so that's, that's been fun dealing with, because obviously people reply and... We just got given the email to copy paste, but people would reply and ask you questions. Like, I don't know why you're asking me. I don't. I didn't even read the fucking email. I just copy pasted it. Yeah, that's nothing better than angry old people that you have to deal with in a customer facing capacity. Yeah, uh, like me and the guys at next to, um, we we each had a particularly difficult client. Uh, so we, we 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 email. You're supposed to email your own clients, but we emailed sort of each other's, so we wouldn't incur further wrath from someone who was already pissed off at us. <laughs> it's a good strategy to. to uh, it, it's, it seems to have worked. Power sharing situation. What about you? Anything anything amusing happen in your office? Not really. I mean, it's it's a. Uh... A lot of people are working from home and I'm just training right now. So yeah, it is so boring. How is that teleconference? I want whatever it was that they gave Michael Jackson that <laughs> killed him. A vial of that, please. Listeners, polchpod at gmail.com. Email me. I'll send you my P.O. box. Please send me some tranquilizers that I can 
shoot into my veins at 9 a.m. Uh, every morning because I need it to get through just a little half dose. So I'm nodding out, but I'm still there for the teleconference. I can still, you know, hit the reply button, you know, to show the trainers that I'm there, <laughs> but just enough to keep me on the edge of consciousness so I can get through this. Welcome to the rat race. It's horrible. It's absolutely oh, horrible. Yeah. I, I, the thing is, right, if, 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 as you keep going, as you keep advancing, you'll only have more training about more complicated things. So you'll be in training for even longer, having to learn even more. Listen, I, I know reform and capitalism and all that, but really, please, Donald Trump, if you're listening, make life bearable for us and legalize heroin. I want to be able to get China White at Rite Aid. I promise I'll stick with my job. I'll go Straight in. Straight the boat. <laughs> I'll be a good boy. But let us do heroin to get through our boring fucking office jobs. <laughs> What's it is Nick the only way. Uh, <laughs> do you think Nick could take this on? Oh, no, it's gone, it's gone 10 a.m. Listen, Nick, Nick, shut up. <laughs> I'll do just enough that I can still do my job. But, you know... Just in terms of reducing burnout, I think it'll pay for itself. I mean, but what, what about any, any other drugs as well, or just heroin? I mean, what other ones do you need? I mean, what, what else? I mean, that's the king, you know? That's true. It's, I've never done heroin. I had, a, I, had a, I had a brief Percocet phase, you might remember, which was... <laughs> Oh boy, do I! <laughs> Just the greatest time. Just I mean, the I'd, fondest memories of my life. <laughs> I'd I'd be interested in trying heroin. Yeah. Once. I'm squeamish about needles. I'd have to snort it. Oh yeah, I I, I can't stand needles. I don't know how. Like that that's probably the main obstacle for uh, for doing heroin for me is that I'd have to inject <laughs> it. Were it not for that, you would be. <laughs> I'd, I'd already be shooting that scan. T- taking your first right train to Birmingham or wherever sketchy place you can get heroin. I mean, there's, prob- there's probably places around here I could get heroin. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine there's many places in England where you couldn't you know, eventually prankle some heroin. Yeah, train spotting style. That's good. Uh, listeners, exactly. if you know where you can get good heroin... In the Midlands. Right into Polch. Uh, yeah, right into Polch. Send us samples. We're going to have a P.O. box. <laughs> Help us get through our boring fucking jobs. And someone, join someone in. Someone did once. Uh, they ordered some cocaine off the Silk Road. That seems to, seemed to be oh, fun. Yeah, yeah it's, is that still working, Silk Road? I, I knew I a guy. Been, I think it's been shut down now. But yeah. Sort of, something's been set up. I knew uh, a guy in college who would, uh, who would like buy... LSD online and and uh, sell it, but you know it's it's a uh, they're not really watching for people selling drugs at their college campus. You know that's pretty uh that's pretty safe territory. So I I don't know if he was really all that smart or if the police just didn't really care. Um, but yeah. he would do that. I don't know. I'm not. I, I don't care about acid. I'm not interested in psychedelics. I've had one very good experience on acid and one 
very, very bad experience on acid. So. Yeah. It just makes me think of sweat and sideburns, you know, and that's that's enough to dissuade me from trying it. Yeah, like one time we were doing acid, we were watching American Psycho. And you know how everyone's like really sweaty in that movie? Mm-hmm. I kept thinking I was as sweaty as they were. And I was like <laughs> wiping my forehead like, oh God, I'm so sweaty. And I, I wasn't at all. But I just, I just felt like I was just drenched in sweat. Oh, I was thinking about that movie the other day. I got to watch that again. <laughs> Fucking business card scene. Just really top stuff. Well, everybody, thank you for listening. Tune in next time when we discuss... It might be against nature next week, as, as we promised. The delay time. has been, thanks to this damned Chinese virus, uh, the post has been held up. Well, and also the, uh, the, the sorting office near me, where all my post gets sorted, uh, the roof collapsed. So that's, that's, that's been holding things up, <laughs> regardless of COVID. <laughs> So yeah, we were we were trying to acquire a copy of, of Against Nature uh, for the next episode, and hopefully that'll come through. If not, we will do dangerous liaisons. Liaisons dangereux. Dangereux. Um, so either of those to all eight of you out there in Radio Land listening. I know in, how many there are now because we have a different <laughs> provider. Um, in, uh, where exactly? In- <laughs> no, we gotta cut that. That's gonna be weird. <laughs> That's gonna be so strange. If they're just like into our listener and. Oh, you've got to say it. That'd be so good. No, that would be so fucking creepy. It'd be so good. It'd be amazing. No, I'm in charge of editing. I get You're the files. Coward. Yeah. No. <laughs> No, that would be really fucking weird. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we do know where you live, so we know where we you know live. We know exactly where you live, and if you don't tell us where to find heroin or whatever tranquilizers killed Michael Jackson, we will come over there and extract that information from you. Yep. So listen, folks, we have a lot of fun on this show, and in all seven episodes, which are all available and have been recorded, We've never asked anything of you, but now the time has come. Listen, you think we're recording seven hours of audio just for free? No. You think we're reading books because we enjoy it? I hate books. I hate (laughs) reading. I log out of this show and I I throw my hat on the floor and I go, fuck! You, You literally burn each book we do after recording the episode. I flip on my Nintendo Switch and I get back to playing Animal Crossing. This is not a work of love. This is about the money. And so in order to make money, we need more exposure. So go on iTunes. Give us five stars. I don't care what you say, but it better be believable. If there's any question as to whether your reviews are genuine, listen, there's not that many of you. We know which one it is. We can find (laughs) the time zone. We can find which one of you is not writing a good review for us. So if you don't, uh, listen, I'm a gun owner. I'm not joking. I have a Mossberg 500 12-gauge <laughs> shotgun and a Taurus 87 hammerless 38 special. And either one of those is enough to take down an average podcast listener. So <laughs> if you... Yeah, a strong breeze could take down the average podcast listener. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're on this side of the Atlantic, that's coming for you. And if you're on the other side, uh, Joyce has an unlicensed butter knife that... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a little rusty, so you know you might get hepatitis. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if you don't if you don't want either of those outcomes ending your life, uh, go on iTunes. We should be listed on there by the time this airs. Um, if not, we're on other platforms, Stitcher and Overcloud and bunch of other fucking ones i don't know i don't listen to podcasts I've literally never heard of any of these yeah yeah but uh go listen on, go on all of them Log go on all, all of them. them subscribe to us leave five make, star reviews make multiple email accounts specifically mention that we're better than chapa trap house because that's a <laughs> yes. point of personal pride tell tell all of your friends tell all your friends call up your estranged parents and say listen when was the last time you spoke to your grandmother? <laughs> Call her up. Tell <laughs> her about Pulch. Listen. <laughs> I know you don't remember who I am, but there's a podcast that's available on anchor.fm forward slash Pulch that you need to be listening to. <laughs> Grandma, do you want to hear two dipshits have opinions about spy novels? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, that's the plug. Thanks, everybody. Yes, thank you. See you in however long it is before the next episode where we will discuss a classic French novel. Bye. Уважаемые дамы из пылающих гнезд, Вас погасят сегодня кавалеры белых звезд. Сегодня, как всегда, станет снова спокойно, Ведь общая беда — это жуткое бойло, И чьи-то негасимые жаркие глаза Зальем по краям прохладная вода, И желто-красный банк у тебя в рукаве Станет голубым, как лунный свет на траве. Беды, это просто когда наступает действительно большая беда, и все, что в тебе топят в общей беде, и это всех нас достойно вполне. Гемоглобин или коциты из кровотных кровей безупречно будут смешаны с твоей и моей. Все растворится в чреве общей беды. Гуляй, ведь не ясно, где я, а где ты. Сегодня единственный в жизни день, когда мы все стопом несем свою лень. Это первая степень свободы пока, но нужно брать быка за рога. Будет еще танец огня, на это нам вряд ли достаточно дня. Спалят кавалеров с тупых белых звезд Искрометные особы безупречных кровей Выходите на бульвары, выползайте живей Выносите свои крепкие худые зады Будем пьянствовать сегодня праздник общей беды